Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 57 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. And guys, the Olympics wrap up on Sunday evening, closing ceremony. Big stories this week. Obviously, Usain Bolt going three for three with gold medals. And then Ryan Lochte making international headlines. Have you guys seen a dumber Olympian in your lifetime? Well, uh, Jim Rome, uh, we were just talking about, tweeted about the Tanya Harding thing. That was pretty dumb, but... um... more calculated, I guess. This was just an embarrassing situation. But I got to be honest, I'm not that worked up about it. I'm certainly not as worked up about it as I am or as there are stories about it. I mean, it is everywhere. And is it really that big of a deal? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's, I think he's done. He's very stupid for what he did, you know, peeing on the ground, uh, tearing down a poster, allegedly. And actually, I just said allegedly. I want to make it clear that last week on the podcast... It's good that we mentioned allegedly. Yes, we said Ryan Lochte allegedly robbed at gunpoint. And uh, I think that there is a little bit of truth somewhere in the middle between what the uh, the Rio police are saying and what Ryan Lochte's camp are saying. Uh, and if you look no further than the media, uh, earlier this week I was looking at uh, Twitter, and uh, in my timeline there were two tweets that stuck out to me that actually were tweeted back-to-back. One was from Richard Deitch, who said, Lochte should never swim again. Lochte is an example of anti-Americanism. Lochte is PC culture run amok. Lochte is dot, 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 dot. Clay Travis. Brazil extorted our swimmers and held them hostage, and Lochte and his drunken pals are the bad guys? Give me a break. So I I think it's kind of comical to see the extremes that media outlets are taking. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think Ryan Lochte and his uh, fellow swimmers made some mistakes, and I think the way that uh, the security guards held guns to their head and demanded money right away, that's extortion. Uh, So I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, definitely drunken frat boy antics aside, uh, you know, Lochte... Um, should have paid for the damages that he um, committed against that poor store. However, yeah, you don't usually, the way that's done, even in a country like Brazil, like you usually make an arrangement or something or they would file suit or or something to uh, get compensation from him. But yeah, I mean, if you look at his story, I mean, there's parts of it that are true. I mean, he was held at gunpoint and he was, uh, you know, there was cash handed over in sort of a quick way, like it was a robbery. So yeah, I can totally see how his side of the story uh, could initially seem true. But um, yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know, this whole thing, I, I'm asking myself right now, if social media wasn't uh, what it is today, would this story be what it is? Because I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, you know, I'm starting to think like, you know, this, this social media is just sort of where all these polarized views get distilled and then they sort of get put forth as like mainstream, you know, all this outrage about Brian Lochte and um, other little acidite things that Olympians do. So I don't know. That's just kind of the question that's been on my mind here. I don't understand what comes up with the idea of white privilege though. What, because uh, he's, Brian Lochte's white. He's been a benefitor of uh, white privilege his entire existence. I don't see how it's relevant in this case though. How how, how is he benefiting, I guess? Because I guess some people are saying, what, like, boys will be boys or whatever? Is that yeah. the sort of the line that's being so, thrown out there? But that quote comes from uh, the PR staff for the Rio 2016 Organizing Committee. And I think the reason why they said that is because they did not want this to become an international incident, <laughs> which it has become. Because, you know, there has been a lot of negativity surrounding Rio, like Rio uh, the corruption going on in Brazil. 
And so they they didn't want this to be a bigger story than it had to be. But obviously, in the world of social media, like Jeremy and just alluded to, this is a story that's just going to blow up, go out of proportion. Um, and I, I don't understand why people are saying white privilege uh, for Ryan Lochte. To me, that makes no sense. I think Ryan Lochte let his guys out there. You know, he left them out there to dry. Um, he went back to the United States. He's obviously not going to go back to Brazil anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. This whole narrative about white privilege, then the comparisons that we see between uh, him and Gabby Douglas, who didn't hold her uh, hand over her heart when Team USA won gold medal in the, uh, in the team competition in gymnastics. You know, there were a few people on Twitter criticizing her. The national media wasn't. But you've seen all these memes on, on Facebook, on Twitter, suggesting that the media was attacking Gabby Douglas and is giving Ryan Lochte a pass. People aren't giving Ryan Lochte a pass. I mean, as we see from Richard Dice, who is calling from him to be banned from USA Swimming. So I don't know. I, I think the whole thing is being blown out of proportion. I think it's a bigger story than it probably has to be. But, you know, in an age in which, uh, there, you know, Zeke is not really talked about right now, uh, this is just a headline for the Olympics, and it's going to pass in about a week or two. The Gabby Douglas thing uh, made me kind of angry. I, I, I always find it kind of weird that at these sporting events, it's so wrapped up in this jingoistic national vibe. It almost seems like Nazism in a way, the way we're all supposed to stand up and salute uh, when the national anthem comes on. They play it at every sporting event. I mean, I cover sports for a living. What will end up happening is I'll hear the national anthem, you know, four or five times in a day sometimes, you know, and even as a journalist, I'm expected to stand up from my computer, put my hand over my heart. It's, I think it's nonsense. And anyone criticizing Gabby Douglas, who, uh, you know, was representing her country, just has an axe to grind. It's some sort of a moron. I'll go on the record saying that. And it's a small handful of people that are doing that. And Jeremy, you're just kind of looking at me in the days right now. No, I, I don't. I don't think it's it's wrong to want your athletes to you know put their hand up over their heart. But I, I think the reaction was blown out of proportion. I don't think Gabby Douglas had any sort of animus towards the United States when she was yeah when she was standing up there. It, nor nor do I think that um, singing the national anthem before every game or event is some sort of jingoistic nationalism. I, I think that it's okay to be proud of your country, um, but that's beside the point. The point is Gabby Douglas was sort of the recipient of a lot of unwanted. I mean, this is, again, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing the, the finger more at social media and the fact that it gives anonymous people um, a voice to use and misuse. Exactly. And there are other ways to salute the flag. I mean, the military, nobody in the military puts their hand over their heart. They see an ad attention. Or uh, you have the 1968 Olympics when you have Tommy Smith and John Carlos raise their fist. That's that's a patriotic salute. That's something I can get behind. One of the things that I did find uh, hilarious regarding the national anthem is there was a video surfaced. There was a video that surfaced from 2015 of uh, Usain Bolt uh, telling a reporter to, you know, essentially hold on, the U.S. National Anthem is playing. We've got to stand in attention. And so, you know, this was a video from 2015, but it was being passed off like it was happening during the Rio games. And people were like, oh, this is why I love Usain Bolt. You know, he's he's even standing up for America's National Anthem. And it's like, hold on. This is 2015, people. Like, that's the problem with social media. People share things. And people believe that it's actually Rio 2016. And you know it's not Rio 2016 because the stands in 2015 in that video are actually packed. And there is, like, nobody at these gold medal races in Rio. It's insane. I mean, uh, Usain Bolt, three gold medals. He won the 100, the 200, and the, uh, the 4x1 relay. And you look at the crowds, they were empty. The stands were empty, and uh, the Paralympics start here uh, in just probably about two weeks, and uh, crowds in Rio, uh, ticket sales right now are, are approximately at 12%, and so if we think the crowds and uh, the stands right now are 
low. They're going to be even lower for the Paralympics. So to me, it's just kind of fascinating. But as we wrap up the Olympics, what were other big storylines for you guys? In terms of the medal count, um, I think it's actually fascinating who has ended up in second place if you're looking at, at you know, medal count by gold medals. Great Britain has uh, taken a second place uh, position, second only in the United States, and then followed up by third by China. Um, if you look at Great, Great Britain's history over the past few summer games with London excluded, they typically don't do very well. So they were able to sort of uh, take the momentum that they had in London and carry it over to Rio, which I think is impressive for a small island nation with um, what I don't think is a huge budget that they throw at the Olympics every four years. So uh, kudos to the British Olympic team. Outside of the Olympics, we are about two weeks away from college football. And uh, did you guys get a chance to see the AP rankings that came out on Sunday morning? I did, and I was actually a little surprised at um, where some of these teams ended up. Um, I don't agree with teams like Michigan being in the top 10. Um, also, it's sort of interesting to see uh, LSU up there as well, um, especially with all the controversy over their coach, you know, sort of maybe not being there uh, this year. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'd, I'd like to see what you guys think. Also, Tennessee ended up at number nine that's a little surprising I mean, don't you think yeah so we spoke about this uh a few weeks ago with the, the coaches poll when that came out and tennessee was one of the teams that i didn't think should be ranked as high as they were i believe they were number 10 in the coaches poll lsu i think is definitely a top five team uh especially with leonard Fournette coming back if they stay healthy they're going to be a, a very very solid team under less miles uh, michigan i kind of see your point with michigan they haven't really proven a lot i think a lot of it's just based on the hype on jim harbaugh but again you've got seven teams that receive first place votes in the ap top 25 uh, some teams of note tcu checks in at number 13 u of h checks in at number 15 it's their highest ap ranking since 1991 uh, baylor bears we had coach jim grobe on the podcast last week they check in at number 23 so uh, a lot of teams uh, ranked right now. Um, there are teams that aren't ranked that kind of surprise me. Um, Texas, for example, is receiving votes. That baffles me. Like, how are they receiving votes? Um, I, I I don't know that, you know, marginal records in the past two years are enough to justify ranking that team on somebody's ballot, but obviously people are doing that. But the point is, uh, there are going to be teams that are ranked right now that aren't going to end the season ranked. There are going to be teams that aren't ranked that are going to end up in the top 10. Uh, last year, we saw Auburn, preseason number six, I believe. Uh, they struggled to, I believe, a 7-5 and five record, ended up not being ranked. So that's the beauty of college football is the rankings right now don't matter. Not at all. But if they did, the coaches have Houston two spots higher than they do in the AP poll, uh, which just goes to show that the coaches have their head in the game. They know more about this than the journalists do. So, so it's actually the SIDs that vote. So the SIDs have more insight, I guess. Yeah, correct. A, a direct line to the coaches who know what's going on with these teams. But uh, is it really the SIDs who vote? A lot of times, yeah. I, th I thought they were voting the coaches vote. It's actually the... I've actually filled out a, co <laughs> a coach's ballot at Louisiana Tech. Wow, that's corrupt. Okay, well, uh, good to know for sure. I'm, I'm glad I have that information. But uh, I don't know. I, I think that Houston is uh, is probably probably right where it ought to be. Now, if they beat Oklahoma, and I love to see Oklahoma rank so high because that makes that win that much more valuable. And I'm hedging my bets here. I'm a cynic. It makes the loss that much more excusable if it happens as well. So the higher they rank Oklahoma, the better I feel. And speaking of interesting football programs, East Mississippi Community College uh, might not sound familiar to most of you, but it is the uh, the focus of a Netflix documentary called Last Chance You. And Kevin actually had the opportunity to speak with 
I guess, the face of the documentary, and that's Brittany Wagner, who is the academic counselor for the program. And uh, if you haven't seen the documentary, I highly recommend it. It's completely fascinating. It makes Hard Knocks on HBO look pitiful. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kevin, uh, if you just want to go ahead and, I guess, tee it up, we're going to speak with Brittany here in just a few minutes. And what were your thoughts? Yeah, Brittany's terrific. I mean, a lot of people calling her the breakout star of the documentary, and I think that's totally justified because she has perhaps the hardest job. I mean, those kids are there at EMCC um, primarily because they're not good students. They're kids that have D1 offers that don't have D1 grades, and so they're trying to go there to vault themselves to another. So you're dealing with a program in which nobody wants to be there, uh, and a program in which everybody wants to lead to go to something better, and you kind of have to corral them and keep them academically focused. And, uh, and it's no surprise to me that the public just fell in love with her. Her Twitter following exploded from 127 followers uh, before the documentary dropped. I think she was like 16,000 last I checked yesterday or something like that. So she is obviously very well known, but uh, there's actually a tie-in. Devontae Pollard, I don't know if you're a U of H fan, you like the basketball. Devontae Pollard spent time at EMCC before Coach Sampson recruited him for the basketball program here. You also have uh, Brandon Hodges at the University of Texas, an EMCC alum as well. So, I mean, these kids go on to do great things. Uh, a lot of them play professionally, and a lot of them play at the uh, D1 college level. So it's a fascinating story. So watch the documentary, but don't turn this off and watch the documentary. I know podcasts say that sometimes. You know, Listen, this will actually enhance your enjoyment of it to hear Brittany talk about it first. Yeah, Chad Kelly, who is the starting quarterback at Ole Miss, actually spent time at EMCC. So it's uh, definitely a great documentary. Also, high school football kicks off this week. So we've got, we kind of break that down with Jeremy Branham, who works with Sports Radio 610 and Texan Live here in Houston. So uh, stay tuned for that as well. And if you're going out to high school football games this week or getting ready for college football, you need tailgate food. And with all tailgate food, you need dessert. And if you want dessert, you go to We Desserts. We Desserts. O-U-I Desserts means yes in French, I'm told. Uh, basically, their speciality, if you will. I like the way I pronounce it. Their specialty is, uh, is beignets. They have beignets other places in the city, but uh, never really like they have at We Desserts. You can get the beignets, three for $5, or beignet bites for $3 Thursday through Sunday at We Desserts, and it is uh, terrific. I mean, hot, steamy, delicious, everything you'd want a beignet. And the beignet bites in particular, it's not like other places around the city where they take the day-old beignets and they chop them up and they repackage them or whatever. These are fresh beignet bites every time. So go in there, talk to Penny and Jen, tell the guys from the Weekly Brew sent you by. You get 10% off your order. So those $3 or those $5 beignet uh those $5 beignets or those $3 beignet bites become 10% cheaper, which is uh, which is terrific for you. Absolutely. Make sure to stop by 3411 Kirby here in H-Town and tell them that, uh, tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. You'll get 10% off. Also, we want to make sure that you follow us on social media. You can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, subscribe to our website, weeklybrewcast.com. But as we alluded to a few moments ago, we've got a great interview coming up in just a few minutes with Brittany Wagner from Last Chance U, uh, the breakout Netflix documentary. Also, Jeremy Branham's going to join us in about 20 minutes. So without further ado, we've got a packed show on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax, be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. One of the most intriguing and interesting documentaries that we have viewed here at The Weekly Brew uh, in recent years has been Last Chance U, which profiles the powerhouse football program at East Mississippi Community College. The school has produced dozens of NFL standouts and college stars, and one person who has played an instrumental role in all their careers has been Brittany Wagner, the athletic instructional advisor and compliance assistant at EMCC, who has, uh, I'm going to say, rocketed to stardom after the uh, Netflix documentary. Is that a fair assessment, Brittany? Um, you're close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has been really uh, amazing to watch your profile grow because we do think that, you know, you were a really integral part of the documentary and of the process there uh, at Scuba Tech, as it is called. And we certainly enjoyed watching you there. But um, I mean, when you kind of started out doing what you do, did you ever imagine that you would get this kind of profile and that there would be a Netflix documentary about the way that you do your job? Oh, no. I mean, 
I think, you know, people that go into this profession pretty much understand that it's it's a behind the scenes job. Um it's pretty pretty much most of the time a thankless job. So I think you just know that going in that you've got to get your reward and gratification within yourself and and take the thank yous as they come and um but you're you know, you're not going to get rich, you're not going to get famous and you're you might not even get thanked. <laughs> for doing the job. So this has all just been a whirlwind and um, completely overwhelming in such a positive way. Well, let us say first then thank you from us at the Weekly Brew. We were really impressed with the way that you carried yourself and performed your job, which is a hard and, as you say, sometimes thankless job. Um, but one thing I'm curious about, a lot of documentaries and reality television sort of get flack for drumming up drama uh, and questionable editing practices to heighten that drama. What was your experience like seeing the full document after it was finalized? And uh, I know you initially had some reservations about the process, but having come through it, does it feel like it was a valuable thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why um, I, I agreed to do it in the first place was I did my research on Greg Whiteley, who was the producer of the show, and I didn't want to be a part of a reality TV show and of a show that was going to be scripted or where plot lines were going to be induced in any way. I didn't want to be a part of anything that kind of poked fun of Mississippi. Um, so that is definitely not what this was. I mean, there were no scripts. There was no, there were no plot lines that were induced. There was no egging on of situations or kind of creating drama. Um, I mean, the crew literally just sat in here and waited for players to come in my office or for things to happen. And I've said it over and over again. I mean, the, the countless hours of just nothing that they must have had when they were editing <laughs> because they did just sit here. And so I know that they had so much footage of just me typing emails and answering the phone and just pretty much nothing. Um, so it was definitely real. And, I mean, what you saw, the characters that you saw, the personalities, the the drama or lack thereof at some times was real. I mean, it was what we go through here on a daily basis. Yeah, it was, as I was watching, I was struck um... – almost by how it seemed like sometimes the cameras were capturing things I wouldn't have thought they would. Like, people seem to be very honest in front of these cameras. Was your experience that they kind of faded into the background and weren't even necessarily noticeable after a certain period of time? I mean, I think that I think that you don't, you, you know, you, I don't think that you forget they're there. I mean, it, it, they're there and they're always around, and I think that that's something that it's hard to forget that they're around. But I do think that we grew to like the crew. I mean, we, you know, they, I felt like they had my best interest in mind. And, um, you know, I had the same cameraman, the same sound tech in here every day. And so when, when you start to feel comfortable around those people and, uh, you, you know, I think you're a little bit more open. I think, too, part of it was just our naivety to <laughs> what we were getting ourselves into. I mean, you know, it, being the first go around and not really, I don't think I, wrapped my brain around Netflix and just the the hugeness, for lack of a better word, of their audience. Um, so never in a million years did I dream that this would become what it has become. Um, and I think, you know, I think the vulnerability was just we had some some big personalities. We had just people that were open to just being who they were and, and 
you know, people could either take it or leave it, but I think we were all pretty much true to who we are. One of the most interesting storylines and conflicts, which I think is a natural conflict in collegiate sports, is that idea of being an athlete versus being a student. You know, the student-athlete thing, and uh, Maya, the founder of the podcast, reminded me to bring up a, a Cardell Jones tweet saying that he didn't come here to play school, you know, is kind of the attitude. And I think you see a lot of that in the documentary. Um, you told GQ that you thought athletes should be able to major in sports, and I was curious, what would what would that look like if that were to be a, a real thing that athletes could actually come to a school and do in your mind? Yeah, I think that I just, I feel like maybe if we focused on um, a curriculum that could be applied a little bit better in modern society and not necessarily just majoring in sports, you know, as in majoring in what they're doing on the field, but taking classes that really can benefit them past college, you know, those college days that can benefit them in their real life you know, a finance class, money management class, um, a speech class, a interviewing skills class, um, you know, a health class where they learn, you know, bi- uh, um, biomechanics or human A&P where they're learning about their body, their muscles, they can, you know, know when the injuries that they're getting and what their body needs. Um, I think things that are just more applicable to maybe their everyday life than, you know, sometimes I just sit in here and question, when college algebra is the is the class that is holding someone back from a Division One scholarship offer or a, you know a college degree and, and potentially just damaging their future, and it's something that they're just struggling with and and cannot get. You know, I, sometimes I struggle with is this even relevant? You know, this is what's holding their whole future back, and are they ever even going to use college algebra again? Um, so you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a debate for for people that are <laughs> over my pay grade and over my head. But, um, yeah, I mean, I do wish that, that we would maybe have that debate in this country. Is you know, is our curriculum a little out of date? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing to ask, certainly. I think that, uh, you know, the interviews that you're doing in the documentary being out also brings a lot of light to those questions, and, and maybe people will consider them. Um, but you mentioned in that same interview that Life Coach uh, encapsulates a lot of what you do, and I, I do think that shows through on the Netflix documentary. You do it really well, too, uh, at least from what we were able to see. But in your experience, are there commonalities in terms of life skills that these uh, highly touted athletes are lacking, or is there, like, one thing that you find yourself trying to communicate the absolute most to them, that this is the important thing you need to get while you're here? Yeah, I think that there's definitely, I think it's just college kids today or young adults today, and it's just a different environment from when, you know, I was growing up. I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have cell phones. You had to call people's houses and leave a message or, you know, you had to invest a little bit more time and energy into relationships, whether it was a friendship or a, a, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend type relationship. You just had to invest a little bit more time and energy in it. And kids growing up today, I mean, everything is it's instant gratification. You know, they send a text, they get it, they get a response instantaneously, and really, it takes minimal effort. And you know, I think that's something that I talk to talk to the guys about a lot is you know, just putting forth effort in no matter what you're doing. If if it's if it's in the classroom, putting forth the effort of sitting on the front row. It's not something that is hard to do, but that is effort, and it shows that you're caring. You know, bringing the pencil, bringing the pen, that's effort. Asking questions in class, being engaged, looking the teacher in the eye, that's effort. You know, and in the same respect, just in your personal life, putting forth effort rather than sending, you know, a text to ask a girl out, call her on the phone and have a conversation. You know, walk up to her and and introduce yourself and 
talk, you know, rather than just taking the easy way out all the time. Um, you know, I try to talk to them about just, just putting forth a little effort in every single thing that you do. I think that's good advice for anyone, certainly. I think you're right. It's not necessarily athletes. It is um, it is college students or young people with that sort of technology they've grown up with in general. And it's it's fascinating to see it, uh, fascinating to see it play out uh, on the collegiate, you know, uh, arena. But, you know, the fame is kind of an issue, I think. It's interesting that these these athletes have a lot of attention heaped on them as very, very young kids. And uh, I think that that could be good, could be bad in some ways. Uh, do you think that this having this documentary, obviously, season two has been renewed. It will come back. We'll be back at EMCC watching you guys do what you do. Um, do you think there's a danger in having that attention uh, put on these kids, particularly when they're at maybe a vulnerable or transitional time in their lives? I mean, yeah, I guess there is a little bit of a danger in doing that. I mean, I think our guys handled handled it quite well the first go round. Um, you know, I, I think that the pressure that they feel, just in any way, you know, the pressure that they feel in general, even from I think an earlier age than than junior college, I think they start feeling it in junior high school. To be honest with you, it's just it's insurmountable. And I mean, I don't, you know, I it's it's overwhelming to me sometimes to think about it or when I hear their stories of you know, their whole community is is pretty much riding on their shoulders, you know, for them to be the, the big name that comes out of that community. And when you've got, especially in, in the South and in Mississippi and, you know, surrounding areas, when you have these small rural high schools and they they finally get, they go years and years and years without a star player, you know, and they finally get someone that, you know, is named a dandy dozen or, or makes some kind of, five-star list, you know, it, literally the whole school, the whole community is kind of is kind of riding on them to be the name that gets the, their town into notoriety or to be the name that gets businesses or fans to come to their game so that the whole town makes money. Um, you know, their family is putting that pressure on them to, to go get this done in order to support the family. And that's just a huge amount of pressure for someone as young as, you know, 11, 12 years old to feel. And, it, it you know, and, and it's not like they're just depending on their athletic ability to get it done. I mean, there is academics tied to that. So when you're feeling the pressure of performing athletically, but then if you don't handle your business academically, the athletics don't come, you know, it's a, it's a tough balance. And unfortunately, sometimes some, some of these players aren't coming from a from an academic background where they're being supported academically, and you know that pressure they they cave and in, in under that pressure. It is it is difficult to watch some of the uh, the cases that are on the bubble or whatever. But there are so many kids that we just through the documentary fell in love with. You know, uh, DJ Law, Franklin, uh, Ronald Ollie. Obviously, I wept. I think it was episode three when we uh, as a you know documentary uh, audience visited his hometown with him. I mean, it's just so powerful stories. Um, do you, what is your relationship like with these kids after they leave EMCC? Um, you know, particularly uh, or really regardless of whether they're success stories or not. How close a uh, contact do you maintain with them after the fact? Yeah, I think that's one reason you see me in episode six with my head and my hands crying um, because I've done this long enough to know now that they're like my children for two years and I see them every day and I'm highly involved in their lives. And no matter what they say to me on that last day, which most of them say, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna stay in touch, I'm going to talk to you or I got you, you know, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that guy that doesn't forget you. Um, I know in the back of my mind that they're they're leaving, and I probably won't hear from them very much. You know, it is kind of an out of sight, out of mind 
um, thing. And once they go, um, you know, usually there comes a point where I don't hear from them. You know, and someone else has filled my role at their next school um, or their next venture in life, and you know, I'm kind of I'm I'm no longer relevant. And so it's sad to to it's a sad moment for me to it's like losing a child that you don't know if you'll ever see again. Um, you know, and it's hard. Um, I've had bonds like I had with Ollie with players for the past seven years. I mean, there's always a Ronald Ollie on every team, and there's always that group of players that I'm very bonded with during during the year that they're here, and then they leave. And sadly to say, I don't I don't communicate on a regular basis with very many of them. Um, so far, Ronald Ollie and I have communicated quite a bit. Uh, we do text and kind of keep in touch, and I'm kind of keeping tabs on him. I monitor his Twitter and, and call him and get on to him when I see things that I don't like on there. Um, I have spoken with John a few times. He's in camp right now, so I'm, I haven't mm. talked to him since he's been in camp. But um, DJ, I am still in touch with DJ because he's finishing up his a college algebra class, actually. So I'm still in contact with him to see if, make sure or just kind of see if what we're going to do with this math class. So um, right now I am still in touch with a lot of the guys, but I also am realistic enough to know that that will fade eventually because they'll move on and they'll find someone else to fulfill my role. It is, it's bitterly sad to hear you say that because, I mean, watching the documentary, we get invested and we know that you deserve, you know, to have these kids love you and remember you for the rest of their lives. But I guess, you know, that the real world doesn't necessarily happen that way. But you mentioned that you've gotten hundreds of emails, uh, you know, from, from people that have reached out. Obviously, we reached out to you as well. Have you heard from other academic counselors about how um, the depiction of your job and your performance has sort of impacted them in the way that they do their jobs? I have, and that's been something that has been so rewarding to me and I've loved. I didn't really think about that going into filming the documentary. I didn't think about how I would be representing academic counselors all over the country. Um, but I have heard from several strangers, just counselors that I, you know, that I didn't know prior, have sent me emails saying, you know, thank you for shining a light on what we do. I've also have a lot of friends in this profession, and I've gotten phone calls and emails and, and text messages from other friends that are doing this job in other places and. All of them with the same message, you know, thank you for just kind of giving a face and a name to, to our profession. Um, so that I'm so grateful for that because the, there are people just like me at universities and colleges all over the country that are honestly working their tail off for, for college athletes and, and for college coaches um, who are getting paid a lot more than, than these counselors are. So... I hope that coaches and administrators over the country are walking into their counselor's offices these days and saying thanks because they deserve it. When you're kind of looking at the documentary, obviously it's so much footage, like you mentioned, so much in your lives, and then you have to compress it to a six-part documentary. I'm just curious, as you were there day in and day out, was there anything uh, momentous or impactful that you think uh, didn't make the cut for the documentary that you thought was a big storyline? Um, I mean, there were a lot of things that I was kind of shocked. There, both ways, there were things as I was watching it that I was kind of shocked that they, you know, made it in, and then there were things that I was like, oh, they didn't put that in. Um, so, but you know, one being, <laughs> one being that I got my braces off, <laughs> and <laughs> everyone's commented about my braces. Yes, I did have braces, and I got them off while we were filming the show, and they actually filmed me getting my braces off, which didn't make it in the show, but. Um, but yeah, there were there were a lot of 
just scenes in my office, I guess, that I thought maybe would, would make it in. Um, you know, I didn't know what footage they had outside of my office because there were other crews filming in the coaches' offices and then filming the guys in the dorm and all that. So there were things that I didn't know um, they had filmed. And But as far as my office goes, there were several several things. One, Ronald Ollie actually earning that A in English comp. There had to have been a ton of footage of him in here pounding out papers and just really um, one scene in particular where he was just, on edge and couldn't focus and I mean I was just standing over him literally putting his fingers on the keyboard and saying okay <laughs> focus you know and, and trying to just make him write a paper um, and you know some of that didn't get in there which I, I kind of thought it showed more of how he earned the A you know the actual he put in so much work in getting that A so some of that I kind of wish had been in there a little bit more but Overall, I think they did a great job with the editing of, of all the footage that they had. And so, obviously, uh, next year we have season two. I, I, I presume it's come up. It's been renewed, which I think everyone that has seen it is excited uh, to get back within that world and to see you guys at work again. Um, are there are there kids that you already know of or have met and interacted with that you think, um, or, or maybe some kids that had smaller roles this season that we'll see kind of take a step forward next season? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I already kind of, the guys have been here all summer. Um, they've been in summer school and doing summer workouts, so I've already gotten to know the freshmen pretty well and then the sophomores, transfers and all that. So I already kind of have my, you know, my little, I don't want to call them favorites, but I guess they are <laughs> um, my little kids, I guess. Um, I already kind of have them picked out, and I don't think they've, narrowed it down to the actual players that they're going to follow this season, but it will be a similar format. It will be about five players that they really focus in on, um, and then myself and Coach Steven. So it will be similar, but just different faces. Um, but, yeah, we have a really great group of guys here right now, and, and there's there's a Ronald Ollie in this group. Um, there's a DJ Law in this group. Um, so there, there are the same same issues and same types of storylines, but just different faces this time. Well, um, obviously, season two is something to look forward to. But you yourself have mentioned that you know uh, there are struggles and tribulations in doing this. It may not be something that you do forever. What what uh, what do you see on the horizon for you? What would your ideal spot be in five, ten years? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I'm just trying to stay open to all the opportunities right now. I mean, the show's only been out for three weeks, so I'm just still kind of entertaining um, conversations and just kind of trying to figure, you know, figure my life out. I guess. Um, you know, I see myself maybe in a in a bigger role, still doing maybe more of a life coaching, less academic. Um, work, but maybe more of a, a bigger role with life coaching. Um, you know, maybe NCAA will take on to this and start hiring player development people and coaching staff to work with players on off-the-field issues. That would be something that I would love to do. Um, NFL rookies, if they would hire, you know, player development people for teams, not just with the NFL, to work specifically with the rookies of each team. Um, kind of managing their life, um, you know, that would be something that I think I would love to do. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think I'm I've found my niche in, in athletics. I just don't, you know, I'm open to to maybe expanding my horizons a little bit more. What is it about uh, athletes in particular that you enjoy working with? Gosh, I don't know because I'm not one, and, and I, right. I wasn't raised <laughs> in an athletic household. I don't have brothers or anything like that, so I don't really know where I got this 
this um, passion or kind of, you know, God-given ability from. Um, but I think I just I enjoy their struggle with maybe the spotlight and, and you know, but, but yet staying humble and grounded and the, the work ethic of working hard and, and maybe trying to focus that not just on the field or the court but in other areas of their life too. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just It's just been my thing, I guess, for the past 15 well, years. I don't really know how I got here. <laughs> Speaking of Spotlight, uh, in the past three weeks that we've been watching, you've exploded from something like 800 Twitter followers to 15.4 thousand, and deservedly so. I mean, I think that you certainly deserve all the attention you've gotten from this. You do a wonderful job. You're doing the Lord's work. But uh, what's that What's that experience been like, uh, kind of blowing up in that way and having all these eyes on you now? It's overwhelming. I mean, it's I, I, I don't know that I've really sunk, it's really sunk in yet. Um, I had 171 Twitter followers the Thursday before the show came out, and now I'm, I think I'm at 15,000 and something. Um, it's just overwhelming, and to know that I'm inspiring people inspires me um, to, you know, work harder and do even even greater things than I'm doing, so I'm grateful for that, that now I have maybe a little bit more inspiration um, coming at me. It's just overwhelming. I mean, it's it's been awesome and overwhelming, and the people that I've heard from and the fans, and I mean, I just never in a million years expected this. Well, I think that certainly seeing the product, it, uh, it makes sense how it would have happened that way. So for listeners, uh, first of all, we recommend that you watch Last Chance You. Uh, Brittany plays a key role in that, and she is uh, terrific and very watchable and, and really doing good work with these kids. But for the listeners who are curious about you and want to follow you on social media, what uh, how, can they, how can they find you? Oh, gosh, I have to look it up because I don't even know what it is. Um, let's see. My Twitter is at Brittany, and it's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore M-S girl. And my Instagram is the same, um, same hashtag, so, or handle, I guess you call it. I don't even know what you call it. Same thing. And that right now is the only thing that I have public. My Facebook is remaining private, so I, I hate it, but I'm having to decline, decline Facebook requests daily, but... Um, Instagram and Twitter are public, and I would love to hear from everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Brittany Wagner joining us on the Weekly Root Podcast, the academic counselor from uh, Last Chance U, uh, EMCC. Thank you so much for your time, Brittany, and we really uh, we appreciate you coming on. We also appreciate what you do for those kids, and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Jeremy Branham, who is the play-by-play voice for the Houston Dynamo and works with the UHIMG Sports Network and Sports Radio 610 and Texan Live, which covers high school sports in the greater Houston area. And Jeremy, thanks for joining us this week. And with high school football in Texas kicking off this week, Texan Live is releasing a season preview magazine on Thursday, August 25th. And for our listeners that might not be familiar with Texan Live and the season preview, you. Can you give them a brief rundown on what they can find and expect in terms of coverage? Texan Live still, I mean, I would still consider it in its infancy stages. Uh, it's been around for a few years, but it's starting to, to really grow, especially over the last two seasons. Uh, added KDISD as a, as a property, also a Pearland last year. This year we've added uh, Cypress, which is uh, certainly big. Um, you know, not just limited there as well. We have uh, a lot of rice in the postseason. So, uh, our our goal really is to increase uh, the popularity of Houston high school sports and also get it out there more to, to allow the fans and parents, friends and family 
uh, to have an opportunity to not only listen, we, we, we believe a lot in the, the video aspect of it. We want people to be able to watch, and uh, we can do that on Thursdays and Saturday nights live, which is great. But, uh, of course, the, the Friday night UIL rule, which is uh, it's there for a reason, and we follow it. We, we have the audio only uh, on Friday nights and then have the video up uh, about an hour after around midnight, so still an opportunity uh, for everybody to go back and watch. But, yeah, we just wanted to uh, expand the coverage and bring something to the Houston market that, it really hadn't been done before, at least from a video streaming perspective. So, uh, obviously, uh, my bread and butter is high school football. I'm in the Cypress area. That's what I cover day in and day out. Listeners of this podcast are familiar with my history. But maybe for folks who don't necessarily watch a lot of high school football, how, how good is the level of competition here in Houston? And I guess what uh, what sets Houston out or apart as a, as a football city? Well, I, I think it's the player pool. Um, you know, sometimes Houston doesn't have the, the success in terms of winning state titles across the – you know, the scope of all of the classifications or whatever divisions they're in. And I think that's a lot to do because, you know, Houston's so spread out. It's such a huge area that you have so many different high schools. And, you know, Dallas has a great players pool as well. But, you know, you look at these schools and then you should watch these players as they, as they come up as recruits. And you, you see these colleges come into to Houston and really do a lot of their recruiting in the city and it gives you a great idea of how big the player pool is and how good these players you're seeing each and every Friday night really are. You know, not even the, the local schools. You, know, you have your Texas and your Texas A&M's, Baylor's, TCU's, whoever uh, that certainly recruit the Houston area. You know, you have U of H locally who recruits Houston area, but then you have other schools outside of it who who make Houston a hotbed. You know, West Virginia. Dana Holgerson has had uh, his pipeline in Houston for a while. You see a lot of players out of the city go to West Virginia, certainly Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, uh, more schools that uh, have Houston, a lot of Houston players on their roster. And then (laughs) you look at the SEC schools, it seems like two or three players each and every year out of Houston are going to the Alabamas, LSUs, Georgias. Uh, So whenever you're going out to these games each week, you're seeing players that are going to be playing in spotlight college football games and probably even further down the road in the NFL. One of the schools that produces high-profile prospects on an annual basis is Katy High School. And, you know, they won their eighth state championship this past year behind a stout defense that allowed just 62 points all season. And why is that program so good year in and year out? And is there a team in the city this year that can match up with them? You know, it, it seems like each and every year there's probably two or three options that, that could beat Katie down the road. Pearland looks like they're a team that could uh, give them some trouble perhaps or at least contend for uh, being the best team in the city. Uh, North Shore, of course, won their own state championship last year as well. They're always good. They're always loaded. Uh, how would George Ranch respond uh, getting bumped up to Class 6A? They won a state title last year in 5A. Uh, so, I mean, you look in the city of Houston, you have probably three schools in the top five currently that are defending state champions with Katie, North Shore, and George Ranch. And the thing that, that always impresses me about Katie is because I'm not so sure that each and every year they're the most talented team. You know, you look at Manville last season, I thought Manville probably had more talent in terms of you know, who's going to the SEC and which players are going to Division One schools. And I thought Manville had an opportunity to give them a game last season. And, and maybe they would have if they, you know, played a little better early. They had some turnovers early, and Katie jumped out of the gates. I think it was 14-21-0 before you could blink, and then Manville would kind of make it a game late, but they put themselves in such a hole they couldn't do it. Um, it's just the system. The system with Katie is what really impresses me. It starts when they're young. 
the framework that they have in place, uh, I think, is uh, unparalleled from any other school in the nation. You had just mentioned the system at Katie, and when I look at that team, the, you know, they're a physical team that will punch you in the mouth. In the era of spread offenses, especially throughout the state of Texas, how has Katie been so successful for so long running the same offense, which focuses on a power running game? I think there's a lot to be said about doing something and doing it well. Um, you know, you see a lot these days of trying to do a whole lot of different things. People like the complex playbooks or uh, maybe it's like the, the R. Bryles approach where you don't even really have a playbook. You just have a lot of different options and a bunch of different plays, and you, you kind of have the athletes to make it possible. Katie's, I mean, Katie's the opposite. They're a throwback, so to speak. They're, uh, they're a team that's going to play smash-mouth football. But, I mean, they have the ability to throw, and they produce good quarterbacks. Andy Dalton comes to mind. Uh, but they're going to they believe in their philosophy. They, they believe in their style, and their thought is we're going to be really good at what we do and you better be able to beat us at our best. So that, that's what they do. They, they do what they think they're best at, and they dare teams to beat them at it, and most teams can't. So you talk about guys becoming recruits at uh, big-time schools and eventually going on to play uh, at a higher level. Uh, you know, Just for maybe fans that are curious about going out and watching some Texas high school football, who are the players in this city that they absolutely need to get out and see once? You know, um, it, it, the, the player that I really like, that might not necessarily be this huge high school recruit, and actually he's already committed, is uh, Tyler Page out of Friendswood, incredible quarterback. Uh, last season they had a deep playoff push in his junior season, which kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, it, was a, it was kind of a surprise how deep that they got uh, because of, you know, they didn't expect a whole lot out of Friendswood. Tyler Page, when you watch him play, it, <laughs> I, I kind of hesitate to say this, but it reminds you a little bit of Johnny Manziel whenever he was at A&M because, you know, he has the, the ability to create plays. He can run around and make the defense miss. But he's a really good high school quarterback. It looks like he's going to be a receiver at college. In fact, he's already committed to SMU. Chad Morris wants to convert him into being like a, a Julian Edelman type of receiver at the college level. I really like watching him play. Um, but uh, there's a lot of players around the city that I, I really like. And you start to hear more about them, too, after they've had a couple of games in their senior season. But – I mean, you can go pretty much anywhere in the city of Houston, and pretty much every team that you're going to see is going to have two or three Division One players. So if you would indulge me in a little thought experiment, I'm a U of H alum. Uh, a lot of my uh, my sports pride fandom kind of resides with U of H. Let's say U of H is a Power 5 program in uh, a couple of years here. How does that impact its ability to recruit within its own city and not lose players to those SEC programs? I, I think it helps, certainly, being in a Power 5. It would be able to... You know, build a. It would make the wall around the city a little bit bigger for you know whoever, uh, you know, for the University of Houston. Um, you know, it, it's still going to be difficult, even if Houston is a, a power five school, to keep the Alabamas, to keep the LSU's, to keep you know the Florida States, whoever it is, out of the city of Houston. You're always going to have two, three, four, five prospects out of the city of Houston that are going to go to a, a top caliber school that's primed to win a national championship. You know, going to a Power Five would be big for Houston in terms of recruiting because now you keep those players. First off, Houston's doing great in recruiting under Tom Herman, and they've already kind of turned the tide in the positive direction and doing better than some Big 12 schools. Uh, but now you start to, to keep a couple more. You know, Oklahoma State, they come into Houston. They, they pick out a couple here and there. Same thing with Texas Tech. Same thing with some Big Ten schools, Pac-12 schools. You know, Utah, Boise State, they come into town and pick off a, a player or two every now and then. Those players are the ones that would stay home. And then once you start to have success and you build yourself up into, you know, hopefully being a top 10, top 15 program down the road, then 
then that's when you really start to, to slam the door around other schools and build this huge wall around Houston. And that was kind of the Bill Yeoman approach way back in the day, build a wall around mm-hmm. Houston, keep the best players in town. And that's what Herman wants to do. Um, it's challenging not being in a power five. And then once you get to the power five, though, you have to continue to have sustained success and make yourself into, you know, a national championship caliber program to really build a wall around the, uh, the city. And, you know, I think the potential is there. I think it's going to take a, quite a while. It's going, probably going to take a P5 invite. But if you get into a P5 and, and you turn yourself into a top-10 school like TCU or Baylor has been able to do, you know, I think Houston has the resources because they're in Houston to, to be able to have the potential to do that. Well, you just fired me up, Jeremy. I appreciate that. But uh, So you obviously you do the Dynamo, the radio play-by-play. Uh, I get involved with soccer with the World Cup pretty much and don't watch a lot otherwise, but I feel like I should be. Like The Dynamo have been a big name for soccer in the city, and obviously you're intimately involved with that. And for guys like me, what do the Dynamo offer, I guess? Should we be watching? What's, uh, what's, what's there of value? You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. It really is being able to go out there on a game day, and you kind of, you know, you kind of get that college football atmosphere. I would say, where you know, it's a it's a loyal fan base, it's a passionate fan base. They they really are loyal to, to the Houston Dynamo, and they're out there tailgating before the games. So the the Dynamo have a good little setup outside of BBVA Compass Stadium, uh, it's a little beer garden where they they go out and they have a they have a good time before the before the matches. Uh, you know, they're struggling right now, you know, to, to just tell you bluntly. It's a team right now that's struggling. They're going through transition. Uh, their manager at the beginning of the season, Owen Coyle, and the team parted ways. And now uh, assistant coach Wade Barrett, who was actually a team captain whenever the Dynamo won their two back-to-back MLS Cups back in 06 and 07, uh, he's taken over. And, you know, you can start to see the writing on the wall a little bit. The team is improving. Uh, they were giving up a lot of soft goals early. They weren't very tough, and once Barrett took over, that stuff stopped. Now it's a, a team that's very stingy defensively. They're tough to play against, as he likes to say. Um, probably need a few more players, and they were able to clear away some cash uh, at, during the, tr- the the summer transfer window to, to put themselves in a position during the off season to really bring in some some skill to the club. And you know, I, I think that the team, the MLS, is a league where you can turn it around quickly. And I expect the Dynamo with their moves over the uh, really the, the summer transfer window really uh, to be able to improve their club a lot during the off season. And you can start to see that the foundation is being built uh, on a good team that uh, you know will have their fortune turned rather quickly. I think under the direction of Barrett. Again, we have Jeremy Branham on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And Jeremy, you do everything in Houston from the Dynamo to U of H to Sports Radio 610. Kind of circling back for a second to Texan Live and the High School Football Preview Magazine, which will be released on Thursday, August 25th. What was the process like to publish the magazine, which you know covers everything you need to know about high school sports in Houston? Well, it was a great job by the, the people that worked at Texan Live. I, I really didn't have a huge role in it, to be, to be frank with you. Kind of read it whenever it was all put together. Uh, we have a lot uh, more skilled writers and magazine creators over at Texan Live than I am. Uh, so those are the guys that did all the hard work. I just kind of looked at it at the end and said, yep, this looks good, guys. So I didn't really have a whole lot to do with it, though. But, you know, uh, they did a great job. Everybody uh, within the the Texan Live, the Texan Live walls, Joshua, uh, did a great job. Russ putting the magazine together, Mark. We had some other writers along the way. Lou Roche helped out. Uh, it's it's a good it's a good magazine and you know people love high school football right now I'm I'm in that camp I'm in that party where I love high school football but it's a lot 
I mean, there's a ton of schools in the city of Houston. There's tons of schools in the city of Houston, and it's impossible. I mean, we keep up with high school football, and it's impossible for us to, to know these players and these all-district performers. And uh, what the magazine creates, it creates us uh, you know, an opportunity to, to go out to a game and have the magazine in hand and read it up before we go out. Okay, this is what I, I have to look forward to. These are the, these are the players that are good. Um, so really, it's kind of a one-stop shop to uh, just know what you need to know about the Houston high school football. Jeremy, we definitely appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week. And if you're interested in high school football, I'd highly recommend heading over to Texan Live and give them a follow on social media and look for their magazine, which again comes out on August 25th. And Jeremy, for those that are interested in connecting with you on social media, what is the best way for our listeners to find you? Uh, at Jeremy Branham on Twitter. Uh, I guess I'm fairly active on social media. I kind of have an interesting uh, social media is so so interesting. I try to stay out of it for the most part because I don't want to get myself into trouble. But yeah, at Jeremy Branham is the best place to find me, and we're looking forward to having you guys out uh, with Texan Live as well. Look forward to seeing you guys joining the broadcast team. Well, we're looking forward to uh, the game on Friday night, and uh, Jeremy, thanks again for joining us this week. We appreciate it. You got it. Thanks, guys. Closing time. We just had two phenomenal interviews on episode 57 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Brittany Wagner from Last Chance U, the uh, the breakout Netflix documentary. If you haven't watched it, we highly recommend it. Uh, she just was phenomenal. Uh, Kevin, you did a great job of that interview. Also, we had Jeremy Branham on, kind of previewing the, uh, the high school football season, which kicks off in Texas later this week. And uh, one of the things that Jeremy alluded to was... Kevin and I are actually going to be doing high school football games this week. Our secret is out. Uh, he tipped it for us, uh, which we told him he could do, of course. We will be broadcasting some high school games. We start out with, I believe, and this isn't 100% set in stone yet, but we believe it's going to be Cypher versus the Woodlands will be our first game that we're broadcasting, which uh, strikes me as like a game of the week. Sort. That's a really nice matchup. Yeah, so there's some great games in the the state of Texas this week. Uh, Katie High School obviously playing Austin-Westlake. That's probably the biggest game in the state, but locally, I think Cypher and the Woodlands. The Woodlands is going to be a top five team within the city. Cy- Fair, always up there in a very competitive district. Uh, so I think it's going to be a fun game. It's going to be taking place at Pridgen Stadium. Uh, or is it the Berry Center? It's going to be the Berry Center. Well, it's, it's called Cypher FCU Stadium. Okay, so it's, yeah. It's going to be taking place in the Cypher area. <laughs> <laughs> I will get that name down by the end of the week. But uh, what we want to do is, uh, Jeremy, you're not going to be there. Can you give us like a code word to say during the broadcast? Heavy breathing. Are you saying the code word is heavy breathing, or do we need yeah. to actually work heavy breathing into the broadcast? You need to work heavy breathing into the broadcast. Challenge accepted. Okay. And if anyone out there has any other code words that we should uh, work in, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter. You can hit me up at Statin. You can hit Kevin up at Cook. Give us some code words. Hopefully we have like a ridiculously long list. We're doing that the entire game, but it uh, should be a lot of fun. I'm sure Jeremy's going to be thrilled to hear this. <laughs> oh, oh I'm, I'm looking forward to all of the color commentary and code words from you guys this weekend. Here's what's worrying me is that I have been reading up a little bit. I've never done color commentary before. Jeremy Branham's aware of that, so I did not like lie on my application or anything. He knows that I'm sort of untested. But apparently, uh, color commentators are usually former athletes, former players, former coaches who have a deep and rich knowledge of the game, which... Um, yeah, I'm not. If you've ever seen me, I'm not a former athlete of any kind. So uh, it'll be interesting. But I, I have full faith in my abilities. I think I'm going to be terrific at it, even though I have no experience and no background. <laughs> in it. So it should be a lot of fun. And uh, speaking of full faith in our abilities, if you have full faith in our abilities, we want you to go to iTunes, leave us an iTunes review. And Kevin, do we have any this week? We don't have. This is like two weeks, three weeks in a row now. It just feels like we're in the doldrums. I don't know what's up with you guys. Uh, 
there was a time when I felt um, desirable and sexy, you know. Um, they were helping to keep this relationship uh, interesting and, and hot. But uh, now I just feel like I'm getting no feedback at all from the listeners. And uh, and it's like, you know, one of those marriages that's just sort of, you know, like cohabiting lovelessly. So, you know, I, that metaphor is a bit torrid. But, uh, but if you could, it would really make my week if you go to iTunes, click on the uh, ratings and reviews and leave us a five-star review with a little blurb about uh, what you enjoy, maybe how you found us. You know, there's a lot of different ways to stumble upon us. We'd love to hear how you came across the show and uh, also some ideas for things you'd like to see in the show in the future. I think you misjudged the relationship we have with our listeners. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as sensual as you are saying it is. It has been but for me. even if you don't have full faith in our abilities, I want you to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate it. And certainly Kevin would greatly appreciate it. And I know that I'm not the only one that feels this way, guys. So if you're a listener who also feels like you have a deep, intimate, sensual connection with me, feel free to put that on the iTunes review as well. In addition to iTunes, we want to make sure that you also follow us on our social media channels. You can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And uh, guys, we had a great show. Uh, thanks to Brittany Wagner and Jeremy Branham for joining us. And we'll be sure to work in heavy breathing into uh, Friday night's game against the Woodlands and Cypher. And uh, also, if you have any other words you want us to work in, hit us up on Twitter and let us know. But uh, guys, I really enjoyed this week's episode. It was fun talking Olympics, talking college football with you guys. And Looking forward to getting together next week, which will be my last episode in the United States for about two or three weeks, heading off to Rio de Janeiro for the Paralympics. So uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in to episode 57. And uh, for my co-host, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.